The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Well, good morning, chapel family. Yeah. If you're new, welcome. My name is Ryan, and I'm your pastor. Today we are in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and we didn't get to make it as far as I wanted last week, so we're picking up where we left off. So if you have a Bible, you can flip or scroll there. 1 John, chapter 2, we're in the middle of a series called Action Jackson. Jackson means God has been gracious. And this week, um, ironically, not ironically, 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 um, my son Jackson, who I, I basically titled this sermon series after so that when he um, runs away from liking me in the future, he'll at least come back when I die and listen to this sermon series. No one else has that death morbidity thing laughing except me. I'm okay with this. But Jackson was, um, he wasn't breathing super well this week. Uh, we, I, was, I was hanging out with some friends and my wife said, Jackson's not breathing going to the doctors, and I was like, what doctors? They just practice medicine, go to the hospital, hook that kid up to some machines. Um, It ended up being that he had bronchitis and asthma going on, so his lungs were going down, and if you've seen Jackson, he's like, um, if you imagine a shorter, malnourished version of me is Jackson, so when he can't breathe, you could see his weird, his muscles seep into his chest, and all of his ribs from here to here become extremely visible and accentuated. And then all of a sudden you see he can't, like, his chest just says, I don't want to lift anymore. And then we get the medication. Anyone here have asthma? Who's got asthma in here? Man, when you get that machine, it is like delight. Um, For those of you who don't have asthma, let me explain it like this. It's like when you end your low-carb diet with a pint of ice cream. This is like the, the joy and freedom you feel. Um, right, right now, I'm on, I'm on day 13 of um, being a, a 30-day vegan, and... I had, I've had zero cravings until just recently, and it's not, I'm not craving cheese like I thought I would. I'm not craving bacon like everyone else thought I would. What I'm craving is fish. Like I see these friends who post pictures of just fish, and it doesn't even have to be prepared or cooked. It could be someone on a boat with a fresh flopping fish, and I'm like, I want to take that in because I feel like my body needs it, and today... When we're, we're talking about the medication that's helping my son, the, the steroids, the antibiotics, this nebulizer, all of these things, he needs to get into his body in order for them to work. It would not help if I simply took his little medication we put in the nebulizer and poured it on his head like I was doing a Presbyterian baptism. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't work if I took the uh, azithromycin, the, the antibiotic for his bronchitis. It wouldn't work if I put the liquid in the syringe And I said, Jackson, I want you to close your eyes, and I'm just going to squirt this all over your chest, and I'm going to make drawings out of it with finger paint. That wouldn't work. In order for medicine to work, it's got to be in you. In order for my veganism to end, the fish has to go inside my mouth, and I have to chew it and savor it and drizzle it with soy sauce and wasabi and put it on fluffy white rice. Yeah, I'm going to make it 30 days. So today, I'm just going to forewarn you, some of you might be doubting your salvation in the first half of this message. So if you get so dejected that you walk out, I'm just going to say, it's going to get better. And if you cry into the parking lot without hearing the second half, you might feel dejected. Or if you had too many cups of coffee and you only do the first half of this message, then you'll need therapy. So we're going to pray and get into the text. Father, it's, it's for your glory It's for your name that we come here to sing songs, to pray for one another. 
It's for your name and for your glory and for your fame that we would press into a radical type of love that is not common in this world. And Lord, I I pray that today you would speak to those of us in here who have been playing at Christianity and you would bring about conviction and change and transformation. I pray, God, for those in here who have been running the race, that you would fuel them up, that you would uh, light their hearts ablaze again today. And may it be by the power of your words and not my own. May, may it be uh, your eternal word taking seed deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen. Verse 7 of First John chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him, in Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. So my first question is this. Most people that I meet nowadays generally don't like the word hate. And here's how it comes out in a conversation. You'll be talking with a friend, ah, I love this, blah, 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 and then all of a sudden you get to a subject, and someone will say something like this, oh man, I hate that whatever it is, person, place, or thing. And then they'll backpedal, well, I don't really hate it, but I strongly dislike it. Has anyone ever had that experience where a friend does that to them? And obviously it's none of us, it's just our friends, right? Okay, um, and we backpedal because of this passage. Because if we hate something, all of a sudden, in the history of culture, in, in Judeo-Christianity world, like, wait a second, hate is bad. If I hate, then I'm not a child of God, so I need to backpedal and not use the word hate. Well, just a newsflash, you cannot use the word hate and still absolutely hate something. To hate something is to desire ill for it. To hate something is not to want to build up, but to tear down. So, so just look at your life and say, what is it that I love? And if you want to go at the 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. So who are you impatient with? Love is kind. Who are you unkind toward? I mean, we could just go on and on. Love never gives up. Who have you given up on? So, so it's not that you go around saying, I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate. And, and I need to be clear. Um, sometimes within church gatherings, we paint others as these bad, hateful people and Christian people as the nice, kind people, we, we feel like, well, you know, I go to church because I don't kick puppies. I'm mean, or I'm nice. I'm not like one of these mean people. And we have this perception that those people outside the church are less loving, but I've found that to be oftentimes not always true. So actually, if I had to categorize the nicest people I've met, I could tell you which, which uh, religious thing they belong to, and it's not Christianity. That scares me. I'm not going to tell you which one because I don't want you to join because I think they're really wrong. If you want to text me about it, you can text me. But, but here's the thing. Do you have the love of God in you, or is the love of God just on or around you? There's, there's three reasons that people 
can have Christianity like on them, but not in them. And, and let me just make this super clear. Um, prior to me being a devoted follower of the cult of vegan, I, uh, I was a regular consumer of ibuprofen, okay? I, uh, I played basketball. I played volleyball. These joints, like everything's messed up. I already know, like I'm already picking out my canes for when I'm 55 because my knees are bad. My ankles are bad. I can't go for a run without inflammation. It just inflames. So I'm I just take ibuprofen. When we played, uh, we called it old zone because the kids play what we call end zone. And uh, twice we've played what we call old zone, where we get a 30 and up. We get all the adults out here. We put on flags, uh, not the ones the kids use, and we play flag football out here. And it was one of my favorite scenes because before old zone, we're all sitting there, and it's 30 and up. We let one 20-something-year-old play. That was a mistake. Um, we, uh, and we're all sitting there, and literally we're just talking about, like, before we even played the game, hey, man, what'd you take? Like, before we started. I'm like, dude, I already popped four Motrins. One guy's like, I'm on a Percocet for my knee. And I'm thinking, we have not even started playing this game yet. And we're just over here like tic-tacs. And then we go out there. And, I'm, and you know it's one of those things like in your mind, you, just, you feel like you're Adrian Peterson, just like boom, hurtling guys. And then you see the video, and it's you like running duck foot at two miles an hour trying to escape a guy that's on the Percocet, and you can't do it. That's what it looked like. And, but, but the difference is, is, if you hold the medication, it doesn't do anything. If you crush it up and sprinkle it on your head, pixie dust, it doesn't do anything. You have to have it in you, and there are many ways, and here's three of the ways that I've been thinking and praying that people can have Christianity on them or around them, but not in them. There is no love of God within them, and, and this passage is saying that we have to be in the light, and the light should be in us. So here's three reasons why people may have Christianity on them but not in them. They may be holding the medication, but they're not taking it into their life. First one is nostalgia. Some people attend church gatherings because it's the way they were taught. They were taught this is good, this is bad, therefore I go here because it's good. And this is what my mom did or my grandmother did. Many of us are here for those reasons. And, and here's the interesting thing. When you um, see people's life trajectory, oftentimes they go through youth group, they're fired up, they go to college, fall off the faith ship, and then they are living their life, and they have kids. And just to update on last week, if you were here in the second service where we really poked some fun at this, um, baby Rich was born, Taya Rich was born in the hospital, so praise God for baby Rich. Corey's back here again, Um, always faithful, yeah. For those of you who weren't here in the second service last week, I gave Corey a hard time every 10 minutes because Danielle was in labor during service. And I'm like, dude, go, dude, go. And he's like, oh, God's got this. It's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. She went out of labor and then went back in later in the week. But, but baby Rich was, is here now, Taya, and, and pray for her. For her. She's got a little air pocket in her lungs. But it's, it's amazing to me when I, when I think about the nostalgia, because you have kids. And what happens when you have a kid, if you grew up in the church but haven't been going to the church, you look at this little child and you think, this child clearly needs Jesus. They're not sleeping. They're screaming. And then if you don't go to church gatherings and you enroll them into preschool and the teacher sends a note home and says, baby such and such, your child has been biting other humans, you think, this child needs morality. So what do you do? You bring her here to bite the humans in the back. We're okay with that. We teach kids how not to bite. I, we train the adults. Here's how you teach kids not to bite. You bite them back. No, we don't teach them that. Um, but but just, just fair warning fair warning, we've had kids back there that will like Hercules, the other toys at kids, and we're still navigating. Anyway, um, but people, people come back to the church because they're like, well, I was raised in it. This baby should be raised in it. And there's this, there's this comfort. It's like when you climb into your sheets and comforter 
right after you've washed them. It's like that perfect comfort. For some people, Christianity is that comfort, but it's not something that they are enraptured by. The love of God isn't flowing through them. They're people that just need this as a sort of comfortable, nostalgic blanket. Another way is intellectual pride. Some people are part of the church because of the intellectual tidiness of it. There's a massive amount of questions that this world does not provide answers for, and Christianity is one of the worldviews where we provide, I believe, very reasonable answers that lead us to faith in God. And it's nice, but, but I, I need you to understand, um, when I was a youth pastor, there was this, a group of uh, young guys at the time, and I used to be into the uh, arguing about the faith. We're going to talk about this aspect of science and faith and how they integrate and this argument for the existence of God. And, and I would get these guys together, and they all gave their lives to Jesus, and they were sold out. They were all in. And then, as they got older, another argument came along that they thought was a little bit neater and nicer. And then they were all out. They came into Christianity because of the intellectual pride, the idea that they could have answers for questions that other people didn't, the idea that they could be part of this sort of embattled minority and say, I understand things that other people don't. But it's not just an intellectual game. You've, you could put the motor on top of your head, but it's not going to reduce the inflammation of your soul. You could put the Motrin on the outside of your chest, but it's not going to work its way in change your heart. Another way, and this one is, uh, this one's particularly terrifying for me personally, um, people can pick up Christianity and doctrine and not have it in them, but just have it around them, have the pill in their hand because of a particular person or teacher or leader. I've seen this many, many times. You adopt the doctrine because you're like, well, they believe it and I like them, so I can believe what they believe. But in your life, there is no vitality. In your life, there's not this surge of love that draws other people in to learn about Jesus. I've seen this also with spouses. Uh, I, I could not tell you the number, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of spouses where one spouse is excited to come together with the church and the other spouse, it's like they're getting their wisdom teeth pulled every single Sunday. I know that nobody here knows what I'm talking about. But I, I see it. And there's statistics. On Mother's Day, it's generally one of the higher attended days of church gatherings. On Father's Day, it's generally one of the guests lower days because the moms are like what do you want to do mom we love you we honor you and moms are like come to church to save your souls from hell so they all go and the dads they like dads they dad what do you want to do feed me vegan bacon and i'm gonna watch sports they don't really say that that's not real dads that's other fake dads i'm um, just like the fake vegan bacon um but but dads want to stay home and we want to relax it's like we don't relax enough let's be honest guys some of us relax a little bit much some of us milk the fact that our workday was stressful a little bit too often so they don't attend church gatherings. But that's the pattern that I see is that someone's faith is tied to someone else. If you're a student, a teenager, a child, maybe your faith is tied to your parents. Eventually, you've got to move beyond your parents' faith and make it your own. And it can't just be for reasons of nostalgia that you were raised in. It can't just be for intellectual reasons. It can be for some of those things. But ultimately, is the love of God in you? Is the light of Christ in you? Because a lot of people say, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a Christian, I believe these things. But the truth is, is on them and around them, but it's not in them. That's why when I ask people this question, it's, this is sort of one of my questions I, I toss out like little grenades. You know, I'll say, um, are your sins forgiven? Or, or do you think that, that you're going to go to be in the kingdom of God when you pass from this life to the next? And if I hear an answer like this, and, and you may have this answer, and I'm, I want to encourage you today. 
If you have an answer that says something like this, well, I'm trying. Or if you have an answer that says, I'm, I'm doing my best. Or an answer that says, I'm, I hope so. Then, then I'm not sure if you, if you get it yet. If you get the good news of Jesus, good news, the grace of God, it's a free gift. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how much you're able to say or do or produce. It's not about how obedient or disobedient. It's about do you have Jesus in you or don't you? And here's where this passage begins to shift because John, he's a pastor. He's at this point writing this, he's an old pastor. So if you're this person and you're thinking, wait a second, I always answer that question that way. If I, am I going to heaven? I'm trying. I'm working my best. I'm a good person. If you give any reason other than Jesus, you might not have the heart of the God, good news in you yet. You might be holding all of these doctrines and beliefs and looking at them and thinking I should do something with them. But we all can take a lesson from that guy who was crunching on Percocet wearing a knee, knee brace. So here's what John does. He takes a wide swinging tangent. And we're going to read it right now in verse 12. Because he knows that some of you might be discouraged or scared. He knows that some of you might be thinking, I don't know if I am a follower of Jesus because I actually don't always lift up. I'm not always patient. I'm not kind. I tear down. I hurt others. And I know these doctrines, but maybe it's because of nostalgia or pride or following someone else and not making it my own. So John senses this tension and he says this. It's a little limerick. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake or on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Are you catching the repeat here? I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Okay. Man, I feel like just preaching. If you are wondering how you can know that you are a follower of Jesus, that you have the light of God in you, the love of God in you, I need you to, to really focus in on this. If you're terrified that you might be one of these sort of false believers, you have the ideas but not the heart, I want you to understand how salvation comes. Little children, John is writing to you. Young people, and this could be young in the faith, young in the body, because your sins are forgiven why does it say your sins are forgiven? For his name's sake. Your sins are not forgiven because you are good enough. I am super glad that's not the case for most of you. Your sins are not forgiven because you are an amazing repenter. Repenting is the, the thing that Jesus says. He says, repent and believe, which means turn from an old God, turn from what you were following to find security, to find acceptance, to find salvation, and turn to Jesus. That's repentance. Repentance is the light switch. It doesn't produce the electricity. God alone produces the electricity. If you're not tracking the metaphor, repentance is flipping the switch, and forgiveness is the electricity that flows into your life. And there's four things we can learn from these verses here, this little tangent that John's taking us. There are four things that start with the letter P because pastors should be uh, full of alliteration. First is position. Your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. There's a certainty here. 
It's no longer, I hope so, I'm trying, I'm working on it. Because when you say those things, it shows that you don't, you don't get God. You don't understand the fact that it's about His name and His glory and His plan. My, one of my favorite opening lines to a book was from Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, one of the, most, the best-selling books of all time. And, and I just love the first line so much. It's not about you. So many of us make Christianity all about us, but it's all about Jesus. If it was all about you, I would have put your name on the sign outside where it says all about Jesus. But that would look weird if it just said all about Bob. The position that you're in is secured because of God's grace. It's not about your obedience or your performance. It's about his name. God is the only being in the universe for whom um, a, a desire to make himself known is actually the best thing for us and the universe. Because the more God is known in us, the more glory he gets, the more satisfied we are in just being with him and him alone, the more his name is made famous and valued. Your sins have been forgiven. If you beat yourself up every time you sin, you're showing that you have not received a total understanding and embrace of his forgiveness. You're beating yourself up because you're saying Jesus wasn't beat up enough. When you beat someone else up for their sins, when you say, I cannot believe you would do that, or as people um, tell, have told my kids in the past, because I, I have pastor's kids, that's the one downfall of being a pastor that has kids, is that you have what are called these PKs. They're called pastor's kids. They're notoriously the ones who are going to go off the wagon. Notoriously. And my wife is not going to be here today, so I could talk about her again in the next service. But if any of you have been a pastor's kid, or a missionary's kid, or a pastor's grandkid, you just know that there's this pressure put on you. And sometimes my kids blow it. And by sometimes, I mean all the time. By all the time, I mean every single day. And I remember hearing someone tell one of my kids once, I can't believe you would do that. Shame on you. You should know better. And, and it was at a church gathering, because one of my kids was acting a fool. And this person was just casting shame on them. And I was watching, ready to give my pastoral pounce. And I said, you know, I brought Jackson aside later. Oops. And I said, buddy, this person was trying to make you feel bad for making a dumb choice. I need, I need you to know that choice you made was really dumb. It was more dumb than they, even they know about it. But isn't it amazing that God will never talk to you like that person just talked to you? So next time they talk to you that way, just say, Jesus died for that sin, baby. No, because that's intellectual pride. But Jackson knows it wholeheartedly, which is why I love that this sermon series is called Action Jackson, Walking in Grace. Because Jackson will do any, some things now, and, and he knows the pattern of sin. We've gone over it a bunch of times. When you sin, you cover, hide, blame, and Jackson will run away, go under his covers, and then I'll come in, and if I'm in full bat dad angry mode, like, Jackson, why did you do this to your sin? There's a hole in my drywall. This is going on here. Why is this on fire? Why is this flooding? Whatever it is, fill in the blank of parenting. Um, he now is his default move. Grace! Dad, give me grace! 
And then I have to explain what grace abuse looks like to him. <laughs> not me abusing him. His name's not Grace. His name's Jackson. But I, I named Savannah Grace, Savannah Grace, because I, I want to be reminded of it. I wrote Grace on my arm because I want to be reminded always Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Justice, which I've tattooed not on my chest because it means getting exactly what you deserve, and I don't want what I deserve. I want Christ. God has forgiven. There's a position here that John is reminding you. Because of his name, he's not waiting for you to get your act together. He will take your jacked up, messed up act and bring you in. So when you sin, here's what you need to remember next. The, the, the second P is power. Young men, young men, I write to you in verse, the end of verse 14, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in you, fam. I've seen too much defeat. When I preached on strongholds a few weeks back, I, I got too many emails saying, I can't get out of this. My, my fill-in-the-blank is broken. My marriage is broken. My addiction is broken. Whatever this is, I need it to live. John is reminding you. I am reminding you. The word of God in you is stronger than anything outside of you. The power of God within you can overcome every addiction, every sin, every situation, or if it's not going to overcome, it's going to carry you through it. And I just want us to understand and see, it's like in my neighborhood, all of the oak trees are about 15 years old, 10 to 15 years old, because that's what they do in all of these neighborhoods. If you go outside the chapel, you can see all the oak trees are a certain height because they just planted them. There's, there's one tree in the middle of my park. It's massive. It's like something out of Jumanji or Avatar. It's just, it goes up and it umbrellas out and it's huge. And there's raccoons that go up and down. There's a hole in the trunk where things can live. It's massive. It's an oak tree, just like the other oak trees. Oak tree? Oak tree. Every couple of years, I don't know why this happens, but not every year, but every couple of years so far, I think once or twice now, my oak tree makes the acorns, and it puts acorns everywhere. And if I don't mow, like I'm prone to at times, all of a sudden these little baby oak trees start shooting up. Have you guys seen this? You just get little leaves shooting up everywhere, and then you mow them down. You just the genocide of oak trees. But those are oak trees, and the ones in front of my house are oak trees, and that's an oak tree. The seed of God's power is in you. The same God who hovered the waters of creation, if you look on the chalkboard in the back, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same God who can take a broken sinner like me and turn my life around, the same God that I've seen take marriages that are in a thousand pieces and reassemble them, the same God who can say to a blind man, see, the same God who can grab the hand of a little girl who has been dead and say, get up, the same God who can take a little kid's lunchbox and feed 5,000 people, that same God's power is in you. So when you come to me and you say, God cannot help my situation, you don't know my situation, I say, you don't know the power of my God. You don't understand that God is within you. The same God that can speak something from nothing says, I'm in you and I'm going to bring love and light out of you. 
when you're discouraged or defeated, you've forgotten who lives in you. There is no sin or habit or addiction. There is no situation where God is scratching his head saying, I cannot figure this out. Maybe you don't have him in you. It's just around you and on you. Third P is the fathers. Fathers, you've known him who's from the beginning. There's a relationship. It's a person. It's position, power, and a person. God is not wrapped up in an idea, in a system that is tidy with its boxes. God is wrapped up in a person. Have you ever wondered why it's so amazing to hug someone? Have you ever wondered that? And maybe you're not the hugging type. You are usually, you're conditioned to not hug, actually. They've done those experiments where they, they don't hug or hold babies. And the, the physical health of the infants decline when they don't have physical touch. There's something about relationship that is hardwired into our experience. You don't, you don't simply fall in love by sharing systematic ideas. Although it's a good idea, young people, if you're planning on ever getting married, don't just get married because of physical touch. That's dumb. You, you should get to know someone. You should say, tell me about your beliefs. When, when I was uh, dating my, my wife, I, I said, okay, I, I want to know, like, what are your views on the Bible? I want to know, what are your views on end times? Or, or can miracles happen? Is Jesus your Lord? And I was like quizzing her. What does it say in Genesis chapter 52? Trick question, there is no Genesis 52. Are you a Proverbs 32 woman? I hope not because there's also no Proverbs 32. So I was quizzing her all the time. And by was, I mean am still. It's got to be annoying to be married to me. But there's a relationship. I can tell my wife I love you. I, I can say, I can say, Amy, here's the things that I enjoy about you. I enjoy the way you laugh. I enjoy the way you take care of our children. I enjoy the way that you keep our house tidy and clean. I could do it just like that, or I can grab her and say, hey, girl, what's up with you? I love you so much. And I could... I can tell her I love her and hold her. I could say the same thing to her standing like a robot, but it won't have the same effect if I say the same thing to her when we're dozing off at night and my hand's on the side of her stomach. I feel Bella's little fist pump me. And um, I say, I love you so much. Thank you for all that you do. Now, like women, which one would you rather have? Like, thank you for being a kind woman who cares for our family. Or the husband who holds you and says, I just I love you from the bottom of my heart. You do so much more than I ever give you credit for. There's a personal touch with God the Father to us in that way. If you've never experienced that, if you don't, if you're like, I don't have that from God, I want that from God, how do I get that from God? It involves going back up. Are, are you in the position of saying it's not about me, it's all about him, it's not about my eternal destination, it's about his name. I was saved not because of how smart I am, but because of how gracious he is. And then you work down this list. And lastly, one that's not in these verses, but implied by these verses, once again, there's just a theme in the Bible. Stages. These stages. So it's so the last P. Position, power, the person, and the personal touch, and then process. You enter into a relationship. There's a reason why John says, 
Little children, young men, old men, little children know God and taste that forgiveness because of God's grace. Young men are filled with the power of God to overcome and conquer evil in their lives, to, to put away the things that are broken. And then the old men have a perspective of a person. They've seen a relationship that has lasted from the beginning. And you look at it all in one package and you see that Christianity is a process. And some of you are thinking, I just want to be at the end game. Can I just have all of the knowledge? People oftentimes uh, will say to me things like that. If I'm at Bible studies and, and I say, hey, can you lead this Bible study? People say, well, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Um, and it's funny to me when people tell me, well, I don't know as much scripture as you. And, and I don't know as much scripture as someone else. And they don't know as much scripture as someone else. I'll never be uh, more humbled about how much Bible I know as I was when a, a missionary came and visited one of my churches. This guy was blind and he was uh, what would be now just a few years older than where I stand, in his early 40s. And he came to the church where I was a youth pastor. And I was like the smart whippersnapper youth pastor. I had a word for everything. I knew basic Bible stuff. I could tell you generally where stuff was. And this blind man in his 40s comes in. And we're talking to him. And his person says, oh, um, he's memorized the entire New Testament. When you say memorize, you mean like he knows the ideas? And they said, no, no. Um, He wanted to know the New Testament, and because he's blind, he could only know it if someone was reading it to him. So he had people read it to him until he memorized the entire New Testament. I'm going to quiz this fool. What happens after Jesus says the disciples are men of little faith, in Mark chapter 4, and then he just starts rolling into it. What happens after there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 8? And I'm like, dude, you are blind. And he's like, I know. (laughs) And you memorize the Bible? Here I am, a pastor with two degrees 17 times as many Bibles. And I'm like, how does John 3.17 go again? You all got John 3.16. How does John 3.15 go? In this 40-something-year-old now, probably late 50s. He's just hanging out somewhere blind as a dark room, reciting scripture until Jesus takes him home. Man, it's a process. It's a process. If you want to know the Bible more, open it and dust it off. If you want to be able to rattle off scriptures to help people, it helps if you've had them rattled into your brain. But don't try to jump from being born again to an old man. Enjoy the journey that you're on. Next week, we're going to baptize some people. I'm going to take out some of these chairs. I got rid of the horse trough that we use, and I got an inflatable hot tub so I can take care of the baptismal at home. We're going to put it right here. Because it's new life, and we're celebrating you're born again. When they come out of the water, I don't say, now recite to me the entire New Testament, you heathen. I say, I'm so glad you're in the family. Don't make a huge mess of it. Who's going to walk with them? Where are you in the process? Do you need Christ in you? Are you thinking, I don't even know. 
if I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus? I, don't, I think it might be on me or around me. Is it in me? Have I taken it? Have I received it? Well, they will know you are my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. Not bubblegum, happy-go-lucky, slapstick love. The love that dies for someone else. The love that says, I will, I will give up these comforts because I, I want to lift you up. I will put aside the pain that was caused to me because I love you so much. Jesus absorbed our sin so that he could love us. We shouldn't think that our love for others will be different than that. Love means you can work through brokenness. You can work through difficulty, which is one of the hardest things for me personally as a pastor. As a pastor, it is difficult for me because I'm trying to create what we call the chapel family. If you're new every week, I say, good morning, chapel family. Not chapel friends, not chapel acquaintances, even though some of you are looking around, you're like, I don't know some of these people. I want us to be family. It's my heart is longing, so I'm saying it out loud so we can all ask, what would it look like if we were a family? Because people come and go, they leave churches, they go to new churches, and I get it. I get it. We can do things that people don't like. Maybe you're here visiting, and you're like, I didn't know this church had drums. Drums are of the devil. I'm serious. You could, I mean, you could laugh, but there are people that believe that. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I don't, I don't like pastors with tattoos, even if they're all about Jesus. I should get a tattoo that says, this tattoo is about Jesus. Just to bug religious people. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't like the way you preach. That's fine too, but if we're, if we're family, and if you're here and you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be part of this family, it means I'll never give up on you. And believe me, I've, I've wanted to give up on many people. But it means that I'm going to encourage others here to never give up. There's a great, great philosopher and theologian said ohana means family family what happens in family nobody gets left behind what I forgot okay do you love people that way if you don't know people that way you should hug strangers before you leave um, I'll tell you not to hug. Don't hug anyone that's physically bigger than you because I don't want to have to break up a fist fight. Hug small people who are terrified. If you go to hug someone and their eyes get bigger, they're an introvert. Don't hug them. Shake their hand. If you go to hug someone and they're an extrovert and they hug you back, don't be the first to let go. When someone's struggling and you see them another day of the week or if you don't know anybody that close, get to know somebody that close. Get involved in a group. If you're like, I don't know where to start getting involved in a group, come talk to me. Go talk to my father-in-law. We'll get you plugged into a group. If you're like, I just don't have time for a group, just let me know because we, we're going to try to make more groups because we're family. We're not friends. We're not acquaintances. We're family because they will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and I'm amazed constantly by the way that you love us. Lord, help us to be secure in the position of our salvation. Help us to live and operate by the power of Your Spirit within us. Help us to know You personally and deeply and help us, God, to be patient in the process. 
Help us to not try to rush and do things out of time, but to simply grow and be faithful and be kind and love others. God, it's all for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said.